Good morning. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. And uh, I'll let, let's jump in at verse 15, Romans chapter 8. I hope you rested well last night. Let's get after it. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and for those, for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Uh, I've never seen a city with too much hope. I've never seen a city with too bright a sense of expectancy for the future. I've never seen a city overflowing with forgiveness. I've never seen a city um, wonderfully set free from the past. Never seen a family like that. I've never seen. I, everywhere in this world is a gospel deficit. That's why we're here. God investing in a new world through us with the gospel. 
Despair is the, it's the air we breathe every day. I wake up, you wake up most mornings not feeling wonderfully loved, forgiven, included, adopted, reinstated, rejoiced over. But we tend to wake up feeling that everything dark in our lives is bigger than God. And then we press the gospel into our hearts with a wonderful adjustment. And here we're going to see that the gospel reveals to us that if children, then also heirs. That is to say, God has so given himself to us now that we have God as our personal possession, therefore giving us a hope beyond all this world. The Bible says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope. So God does not withhold himself from sinners. God only withholds himself from unbelieving sinners who are above him. God gives himself to the undeserving for the sake of Christ. So let's look at this. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That Paul has just told us that the Holy Spirit assures our hearts that we really do belong to God and are cherished by God as his very own children. Here's the next step. And if children, then heirs. We stand to inherit something. Something is coming that is ours, rightly ours. Not ours by fraudulence or robbery, but ours by the decree of God. What do we stand to inherit? Heirs of what? Heirs of God. God adopts brats and makes them his heirs. Now, it's not as though our father is going to die, but it does mean that God is providing for our future. So, John Chrysostom, for example, understood this when he was brought before the empress Eudoxia. Uh, she she uh, threatened him with banishment if, if he didn't stop preaching the gospel. And he told her, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, she said. No, you can't, for my life is hidden with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends. You will have no one left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. He shows us that we, come, we become heroic not by willpower, but by a gospel-awakened awareness that we've been made rich with God as our eternal inheritance. What does Savonarola say? What must he possess who possesses the possessor, capital P, possessor of all things? So we are heirs of God and he says also fellow heirs with Christ. If God is our father, Christ is our brother. And our brother Christ, the Bible says, is the heir of all things. In other words, the father has deeded over to the son literally All things. Jesus is the legally entitled owner of the Taj Mahal. 
and Apple computers and my Chevy pickup and everything. And he's a sharer. He's not a taker. He's a giver. And as fellow heirs with Christ, we stand to inherit joys and privileges that only Jesus Christ deserves. There is a catch. Verse 17. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, obviously, the Bible, this is in the Bible, so it can't be saying that we earn and deserve and merit our glory. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that we don't just suffer. He's saying we suffer with him. You see those words. Not just for him, but we suffer with him. We need to know that because otherwise we might chicken out. We all tend to hold back from Jesus because we're afraid he's going to ask too much of us. So we set preconditions. We say to him in our hearts, I'll go with you up to this point. I'm willing to be heroic. I am a stalwart. Um, I, I will not, I'm not a flake. But beyond this point, I will not go. Because Jesus scares the living daylights out of us. We know he means suffering. He said, take up your cross and follow me daily. So treasuring Christ as our brother and as our lead sufferer, that awareness of him, that sense of partnership with him and belonging to him, God being our father, Christ being our brother in this new family, that does get us obeying him in hard ways. The words with him are his promise. He's a faithful fellow sufferer. So we might not die a martyr's death. But you know, by God's grace, we can live each day with a martyr's heart. The Bible says of all who end up in heaven, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So if we will keep saying yes to Him moment by moment, trusting Him for strength, two things are sure to happen. One, we will suffer with Christ Two, we will be glorified with Christ. And every other glory that tempts us and makes its false promises is a lie to us. But the glory that he promises, here's what the Bible says about it, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I am so thankful for that verse. I'm thankful for Paul's honesty. Do you, do you see it, what's embedded in what he's saying? I consider, Paul's admitting, I have asked the question, is Jesus worth it? I've thought it through. I've considered it. I've done the math. And here's where I come down. He says, my sufferings in this life compared with the glory yet to be revealed to me, it doesn't even register on the scales. The Bible says that our present sufferings are opening up to us an eternal weight of glory. And as everyone knows, that, that's what glory is. It's, it's weightiness, it's density, it's solidity. And this life right now is good. And we should have a wonderful sense of the goodness of God because God made it. Goodness of life because God made it. But this life in this world right now, it's sort of like air. Air really comes in handy moment by moment, one breath at a time. But when I'm hungry, air doesn't help. 
I could gulp in all the air I could, I'd still be hungry. This airy world cannot satisfy our hunger for glory. Don't be ashamed that you have a hunger for glory. It's what God made you for. And our hearts are hungry to become so glorious and solid that we can actually walk right into the blast furnace of God's intense love and enjoy it and only want it to become more burningly intense forever, which it will. So our sufferings in this life are getting us ready for that by burning away our shallowness and our silliness and our flakiness good. Peter Kraft helps us to uh, get in touch with this glory that is beyond all comparison when he writes this. Suppose death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future. And you saw that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you saw that you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's desire. I just love that, by the way, parenthetically. God is not asking you to settle for something. God is not asking you to desire what you're supposed to desire. God has built your heart with desires that He will satisfy. Jesus did not say, I go to prepare a place. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And we're going to walk into that place and look around and say, we, we will not say, well, I could get used to this. We're going to say, oh, for crying out loud, he thought of me. He knew what I would like. You could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire. Heaven, eternal joy. Would you not, if you saw that, would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less a scratch on a penny. That's the hope of the gospel. It's, 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 it's not only about us and our personal salvation, our personal salvation is part of a cosmic salvation. And in these next verses, Paul looks back at the perfection God originally created. He looks around at the ruins of the world as it is now. He looks forward to the new heavens and the new earth. And, and the gospel is saying to us here, don't close your eyes. Look at how bad everything is. Open your eyes. Include everything you fear. Leave nothing out. Heap up in your mind all the sadness, all the disappointment, all the loss. Your own personal story of heartache, betrayal, how you've been sinned against, how you have sinned. Throw in for good measure all the dying stars out there. Heap it all up, all this massive disappointment. And guess what? Jesus says, be a good cheer. I have overcome the world.
Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Um, <laughs> we would never know this if the Bible hadn't told us. There's a kind of forward tilt that God built into the creation. There's, it's, it's waiting. It's waiting for the debut of the children of God, us. And it's longing for that, eager longing. James Holt Moulton, um, the Greek scholar, I think he went down on the Titanic. He went down at sea. It may have been the Titanic. That was 1914. Somewhere right in there. Anyway, James Holt Moulton, uh, he tells us about the word translated eager longing. The Greek word suggests someone craning their neck, stretching their head out to see what's coming. What is out there? The revealing of the sons of God when God will crown us with royalty and immortality. Right now, compared with what we will be, we're barely above vegetables. And then we're going to be majestic. Paul is saying, it's as if the robins and oak trees and largemouth bass and the Matterhorn are, they're going to look at us when God completes this work which he's begun in us. They're going to look at us they're going to look at you. They're going to look at the young people you're caring for who are opening up to Jesus. Right now, they, they might look like a mess. Well, who doesn't? But then, the creation looking at us will say, now those are the ones we've been waiting for. Come and rule over us. And we'll be happy. Verse 21, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So there's a reason why so many poets and artists and filmmakers and novelists and perceptive and sensitive people have been saying for so long that this world is all for nothing and futile and life is meaningless and absurd. They're right. And when we see a film like that, we should thank the person for telling us the truth, but there's more to the truth. That's not the whole story. The Bible tells us the rest of the story. God created the universe not even for mediocrity. God created all things to be a symphony of glorious praise to himself so that we will be caught up in him and enjoy him to the max forever. But we've never heard this cosmic orchestra perform because when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God said to his creation, Shh, not yet. So God's creation is pervaded with brokenness, but Paul says here, not willingly. That is to say, not because of a flaw in its design. 
The sun does not willingly shine on people so that they can use that light to brutalize each other. It's as if the sun is thinking, this this isn't what the Creator made me for. The rain doesn't like falling on the earth so that people can harvest the crops and use the energy of that food to lie and cheat. Electricity doesn't like running computers so that guys can look at porn. Air doesn't like being inhaled by people who then exhale blasphemies against their glorious creator. But it's not because God made a mistake in his creation design, it's his judgment. Not willingly, comma, because of him who subjected it. But 2,000 years ago, a normal, none of us is normal, We're all a little bit weird. 2,000 years ago, a normal man came into this abnormal world and we blamed him and made it his fault and crucified him for it and he took it. And it sank him down to death at the cross And he rose up from it all with a new power of life that won't stop until the whole universe is renovated. And he is why our sufferings are not worth despairing over. And there is no other reason. If he's a fraud, nothing matters. If he's real, we're going to be okay. And we can face anything. Here's the future he's creating. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of children of God. So, in my cartoonist imagination, God will uncork the cosmic champagne bottle and the whole universe will burst into joy. Isaiah said, You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into... Oh my goodness, here they come. This is going to be fun. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. You're going to be there. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Hmm. The pains of childbirth. So our sufferings are taking us somewhere. They're they're creating something new. It feels like our sufferings are robbing it. It feels like our sufferings are a death sentence. Uh, but the truth is, they're the pains of childbirth. Our hardships are part of a larger trauma, and it, it's as if the universe is an emergency room. And we walk into this emergency room, we're born into it, and what do we hear? We hear groanings everywhere. The whole creation is groaning together, the Bible says. Death claims everything, even stars, and nobody and nothing likes Dying. So why all this groaning? Why all this suffering? 
Only the gospel explains it. Death is not a cosmic inevitability. The whole creation is in groaning for a moral reason. We have sinned against God. And now nature, red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson said, throbs with pain everywhere. But God is turning the groaning of that pain into the pangs of childbirth. We're not in the throes of death. We're in the pangs of new life and a new world that's being born that only God can create. So here's how we get involved in that. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Here's our future adoption. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, comma, the redemption of our bodies. So if you belong to Jesus, you have the first fruits of the Spirit. That is to say, God is giving you foretastes of the future, but so often we experience it in the form of pain. That is to say, a new awareness and a new hope, but it actually translates into groanings. Lewis called it the inconsolable longing that nothing in this world can satisfy. It's that sense of nostalgia for the future. So when God does a new work in our hearts and awakens in us a sense of himself and our inheritance in him with Christ, we start groaning inwardly. Becoming a Christian does not mean less groaning. It means new groaning. A new burden that we bear. So we, our whole experience of this world starts changing because now we realize this world is not the payoff. This world is a tantalizing glimpse of our coming reward. And the incompleteness of the world is not meant to mock our longings, but is meant to arouse our longings. So we await our future adoption, a greater adoption as God's children, the redemption of our bodies. Right now we are fully adopted. The decision has been made. The judgment has been rendered. We're included, embraced, forgiven. But this greater adoption is coming when our whole beings will finally become what God had in mind from the start in a new world only God can create and it will never end. The gospel is not the gospel unless it's eternal. It doesn't matter how much God loves me. If it might end in five minutes, it's not good news. What Paul's talking about here is the endlessness and grandeur and all-encompassing scope of the true gospel in its magnitude. We are being given new longings for that. Don't be ashamed of that. It's, uh, I, I find sometimes I'm in, uh, it's easy in a cynical world that doesn't believe anything anymore, it's easy to be embarrassed by this bright longing and groaning and expectancy and hope and oh, I can't wait and oh, may it be today. That, that whole way of thinking is not cool. 
Okay, let's be uncool. It's the gospel at work. Those longings are the beginnings of the new heavens and the new earth within us even now. Verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now I don't mean to dump on anybody, but we do not get our best life now. I believe that's a false teaching. I believe it trivializes us. The prosperity gospel. I mean, what if God did give it? What if this was our best life? Could we be happy with that? What if God gave you the whole world and then the instant you die, you lose it all. You have nothing forever. How would your heart feel about that? What if that were the gospel? If your heart would say, yeah, I'll settle for that. Then you hate God. Those desires and those longings and those groanings are what Pascal called licking the earth. It's not what we were made for. But if your heart said, you know, says this, I, I like this world. This is, I really do. I resonate with this. This feels good. I really wish, I, I, you know, wouldn't it be great if God would come down into this world where I kind of feel at home? What, what, if, what, if, what if heaven were kind of like this, but all the pain removed and everything made beautiful and perfect forever? Well, yes. So this world is, an, if your heart is saying this world's a nice place, God made it, he's going to redeem it, but I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. If that's inside your heart, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Never to leave. So our best life is not now. That's the whole point. It's what he says. And when we feel that, the gospel's really getting through to us. And even now, when our desires are not as alert as we wish they were, sometimes we we flatline emotionally. Let's all admit it. Sometimes we feel nothing. Even then. And we feel like quitting. That's what we feel like. Even then, God helps. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Let me just stop there. I'm thankful for the singular weakness. Not plural weaknesses. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We have weaknesses, that's true. But what Paul is saying is that Weakness is not one more experience alongside other experiences. He's saying weakness is the platform on which we have all our experiences in this life. We have never known anything, not one nanosecond, without weakness as the foundation. The Spirit does not despise weak people. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Again, we would never know this 
if the Lord had not told us in his word. Back in verse 16, the Bible said the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. All right, now, the word likewise in verse 26 connects back with verse 16. The spirit helps us back there by awakening in our hearts a sense of adoption. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. So here's another way the spirit helps us. He helps us in prayer. And he helps us when we are so weak we can't even pray. And what will become of us then if we don't even have any sense of God connection? In those moments when everything is on the line, the extremities of life. Here's what happens. The Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. We don't fully even understand this. But the Bible seems to be saying that God himself enters into our groaning, our moans, the oh. And God turns that experience within us into something of his own. So when we're crushed by life and feeling forsaken, but just turning to the Lord is our only hope, not even knowing what to say. At that moment when we cannot speak, God searches our hearts. He doesn't wait for our words. He searches our hearts. What does he find there? He finds the mind of the Spirit interceding for us. God makes our groanings into his prayers. This is where the heart cry, Abba, Father, comes from. It is awakened by the Holy Spirit within. It means that even when we can't pray, we are not orphaned. Uh, Ole Christian Hallesby was a Norwegian Lutheran pastor during World War II. He fought in the underground when the Nazis invaded and spent time in a concentration camp. He wrote a book on prayer. And Hallesby said this, I have witnessed the death struggle of some of my Christian friends. Pain has coursed through their bodies and souls. This is so great. This is Hallesby helping us in how to walk with someone through unbelievable pain. Pain has coursed through their bodies and souls, but this was not their worst experience. I have seen them gaze at me anxiously and ask, what will become of me when I am no longer able to think a sustained thought or pray to God? It is blessed to be able to say to them, don't worry about the prayers you can't pray. You yourself are a prayer to God at this moment. All that is within you cries out to him. And he hears all the pleas that your suffering soul and body are making to him with groanings that cannot be uttered. But if you should have an occasional restful moment, thank God you've already been reconciled to him and you are resting in the everlasting arms. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We might believe either of three things about our lives. At one extreme, 
nothing is working out, nothing works together for our good. At the other extreme, all things work together for our good. In the mushy middle, well, some things might work out. Um, the least believable position is that middle position. If God is involved with us at all, it's probably the extreme position. All things work together for good. Not some things, not the easy things, not the nice things. All things. If there's any hope at all, it's an extreme hope because God is involved. So here's why we can believe that our lives are entirely meaningful. 2,000 years ago, God himself entered into this fifth-rate world. He became an egoless nobody named Jesus. He loved us. We crucified him for it. That Friday afternoon in April, around 30 AD, the darkest day in human history, God was there turning our malice around for our good. And God's overruling goodness has never changed. What God did on that day, he continues to do every day in your life and mine. God has so wrapped his arms widely around all things in our lives that everything, nobody can outflank God. And nothing can outflank God. And when evil tries to, it only serves God. That's the deepest truth of our existence. That's what God wants you to know about your life. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish Christian about 350 years ago. He suffered immensely. He wrote this in a letter to a friend. Sinners can do nothing but make wounds that Christ may heal them and make debts that he may pay them and make falls that he may raise them and make deaths that he may resurrect them and dig hells for themselves, that he may ransom them. Your life is not a train wreck. Mine isn't either. You're not even living an ordinary life. The understated word good here, all things work together for good, is the incomparable glory. Here's how big your adoption is and will be forever. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, see, you see the adoption doctrine just embedded in all this? Among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. <laughs> At the heart of the universe is a love too great to be limited to what we deserve. That's what this is about. God foreknew us. That was, it cannot be mere foresight, pre-awareness, back in eternity past. Because all whom he foreknew, he also predestined. This means God chose you. But he uses the word for no because God does not choose us the way a computer chooses us for a mass mailing. God chooses us by knowing us. By setting his heart upon us. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now we have the 
foreknew, predestined. We have those prefixes there, locating us in eternity past. We're still there. Predestined means God predetermined our final destiny. So when he chose us, he then decided how it would all turn out. That we would be with Christ, like Christ, with one another, in this overflowing ocean of glory. And Jesus, our brother, will not be ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Now, obviously, people have problem, uh, problems with, and objections and difficulties with the doctrine. I mean, who doesn't have a difficulty with the doctrine of predestination? But it's in the Bible, and we can be glad it is, because we have the spirituality of hamsters. If God had left our destiny up to us, what would we do with it? But God dignifies us. He gives us a sense of the grandeur of our lives that He decided for us when we had no decisions to make except those against Him. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Now Paul moves into our actual experience of things in the here and now. He's talking about our conversion. God didn't wait for us to call to him. God called us. Now, for you, that may have been a blinding flash all in one moment. It may have been a gradual process of just rethinking your life and so forth, a sort of growing realization. But everyone whom God foreknew and predestined, he also called. He gave us the gift of faith. He gave us the gift of repentance As the hymn writer said long ago, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he also called, he also justified. I skipped that part. Uh, God uh, cannot get involved with us without also forgiving us. Because the people he loves are sinners. So in justification, he repositions us from under his wrath to under his smile through the cross of Christ. What happened at the cross? The Bible says God redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So at the cross, the sinless one took our place. And at the cross, God the judge said to the one who became sin at the cross, God said to him, now you're going to be Peter, the denier. You're going to be Paul, the persecutor. You're going to be David, the adulterer. You're going to be the sinner, guilty of everything. Now take it to hell. And he did. And so that enables us Luther helped us to understand, in view of our justification, what do we do now with the accusing thoughts that the devil injects into our minds? We know what it's like. You're minding your own business, cruising through life, and bam! Suddenly there's a fiery dart thought, right into your head. Some damning memory. A shaming thing. That's just, And suddenly the emotional bottom falls out. Do you know what I'm talking about? We all do. And the people to whom we minister, we get this. Here's how Luther understood the doctrine of justification as a weapon. When the devil tells us we are sinners and therefore damned, we may answer, devil, because you say I'm a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. 
Then the devil will say, no, you will be damned. And I will reply, no, for I fly to Christ who has given himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by telling me how great my sins are and try to reduce me to heaviness and despair. On the contrary, when you say I'm a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so I can cut your throat with your own sword and tread you under my feet, for Christ died for sinners. My sin is on his shoulders, not mine. So when you say I'm a sinner, you don't terrify me. You comfort me immensely. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that's our future then. Eternity future. Eternity past, this present. Eternity future. God has his arms around us from end to end. No shame. No shame. Only glory. And Paul is so confident about this, he puts it in the past tense. Even though it's a future event. It's as if he spreads out the blueprint of God's redemption and looks at it from end to end as a blueprint, as a plan, and he sees one outpouring of divine love and adoption after another, and it is so unbreakable as a whole that he feels confident to put the future into the past tense. So no one falls through the cracks along the way from foreknowledge to glorification. Everyone God ends up with, uh, begins with in foreknowledge he ends up with in glorification, the people he starts out with, he completes with, because the love of God is power. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to speak these things into our hearts with such authority that we're reduced to faith and gladness. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.